Hey listeners, today's episode deals with the topics of racism and racial violence. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to those topics ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed in the description. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. I mean, we did it. We're here. Half the work is done. (laughs) Honestly, I mean, we could probably sign off at this point. Well, if you'd like to support us... (laughs) (laughs) Go to our Patreon. Oh my goodness. Hi. Hi, how are you? I have a confession. Okay. It's nothing new to you, but it might be new to listeners. Okay. So I made... Listeners, I made anyway a little bit today. I was like, "Oh, I need a few more minutes." Do you want to know what I was doing? Um, <laughs> brushing your hair? No, I was making coffee. Oh, I'm sorry. Wow, I, I was made to wait for that. I know. So, is it hot coffee then? Yeah, and I had coffee this morning already. How bad is that? Are you going to be hyped up? No, no, it doesn't like. I have to have a good amount of coffee for me to be hyped up or like really quality coffee. You know, I always hear, like I was just listening to Hey Riddle Riddle the other day and J- JPC was talking about how he's had espresso and he's like hyped up. And I have, I can't <laughs> think of a single time where I have had either a highly caffeinated or highly sugared beverage to the where, to the point where I felt like I was, you know, high energy frenetic. I have had so much espresso and even when I started out having it before, I was, like, used to it. I mean, you get a, a little buzz, a little a little pep in your step, but people <laughs> at, people would come into my Starbucks all the time and be like, oh, yeah, I'll ha-, like, they're impressing you. Like, I'm going to get 12 shots over ice. <laughs> and then you're like, okay, no problem. Anything else? And they're, like, looking at you, waiting for your, like, jaw to drop or for you to pass, pass out, you know, mm-hmm. to, like, have a um, <laughs> Blanche Devereaux faint moment. Like, 12 shots? Oh, my, my lord. We have, what do we have here? A superhuman? And I'm like, A, that doesn't even taste very good because all the shots are, like, basically expiring before you're getting to them. And B, yeah. just have a cup of coffee. A shot of espresso is less caffeine than a cup of co- a small cup of coffee. Well, but you would then have to have 12 cups of coffee. No. If you wanted to, the equivalent of, like, a 12 shot of espresso thing would probably be, like... I don't know, two large cups of coffee, maybe? Drama. I don't, drama. I don't, I don't know. It's all for the drama. It's <laughs> all for the drama and the bravado. Like, someone carrying around a cup like that is no different than a monster energy drink crusher on can on the head person, in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Matt, and I'm N. Hi. Welcome to Ripped, Headline- <laughs> Ripped Headlines. Ripped from the headlines. <laughs> I... It looks like you have. Oh God! I know one of these items you're yes, going to you make do. me talk about. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? After, uh, absolutely. You s- well, let's just get into it and, and get past it. <laughs> Listeners, we often have similar conversations off the air that we do on the air about like foods and, and nostalgic things from our childhood and you know favorite things, <laughs> yada yada. And last night we were hanging out together uh, and. We were talking about cereal. Yes. A very, very important subject. It's really serious. It's, yeah. it's really cereal. We were talking about cereal, not the podcast, which we love, but the, the breakfast actual food. The breakfast food or the afternoon snack. 
Yeah. Or the evening, eat the whole Dinner. box. <laughs> yeah. Midnight snack. Any time of day. That's the beauty of cereal. Exactly. And then we started talking about like different kinds of cereals, the ones that are, that are more like a snack or more than a dessert. But here's where oh, we need yeah. to focus on for this conversation. <laughs> okay. One of N's or maybe N's all time favorite cereal. I'm going to pass. I'm, I'm like, I'm holding. You're getting woozy. Back. <laughs> The In the words of, I think it was Vanessa Bayer's character on one of the SNL skits I've watched recently, uh-huh. I need to eat something to push back down what is coming up. <laughs> <laughs> it is grape nuts. They're great. I don't know what to tell you. I haven't ever had them in, in any way that I can remember. I didn't even know about them as a kid. I thought they were like a vintage cereal when I was a kid. Because have so, you seen the box? It still looks yes, like it hasn't a changed. Time warp. <laughs> I would like to first point out that the r- whole reason that we got into a discussion about grape nuts was my partner Miles complained about how they're like so hard they <laughs> can like crack your teeth, mm-hmm. which is true. But that's why it's important to let them sit in the milk for a couple minutes now, or at least a minute or so before now, you eat them. Now I don't understand why that would be a quality you'd want in something you consume. That you need to pass through your mouth in order to get to your throat. I mean, you have to cook other things before you can eat them. You don't eat pasta out of the box or the bag. But you go... Cereal is a convenience food. (laughs) If you want to cook, then make oatmeal. (laughs) Make oatmeal. That is the alternative. But here's... this is like cold. Here is how you know how like deep this goes. I asked Ann about this last night, this <laughs> concept of getting the grape nuts to a, not even pal- palatable, but edible yeah. <laughs> uh, consistency. And they said, this is the quote I have it written down. Because I said, oh, I can't let it sit in the milk. I don't like soggy cereal. I hate soggy cereal. That's a whole nother mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. And they said, it doesn't become soggy. It becomes tender. <laughs> tender. The minute, Uh, listeners, the minute the word was out of my mouth, I knew I had chosen the wrong word because Matt lost it. My face must, the way I felt, my face must have been writhing around my head like a, like someone being exercised from the devil. It was like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe that someone that that I'm close to, who I have a lot of respect for their opinions and thoughts, had told me. That cereal needs to become tender before tender. Ooh, <laughs> Ooh so well, that, if that didn't turn me off to grape nuts, I don't know what will. Grape nuts, if you need a slogan out there, America's most tender cereal. <laughs> since 1925, when the box was created and we've never changed it since Laura Petrie bought it for her husband on the Dick Honestly, Van Dyke probably show. the cereal is still the cereal from like the 1920s. That's what probably why it's so hard. Like it just, it's like they're a big mountainous rock that they're just chipping pieces chipping away, away from. At, yeah. Chip away at that uh, rock. And then put it in a bowl and have it for breakfast. (laughs) Now that you've put me on blast for both (laughs) loving grape nuts and referring to its desired consistency (laughs) as tender, let's move on. (laughs) Let's move on. I actually just had a a terminology thing that I came across recently, and I'm still researching into it. But I I, um, have seen some discussions online of... When folks are, like, talking about um, pedophiles and specifically, like, child pornography. 
that uh-huh. we shouldn't refer to it as child pornography. We should refer to it as child sexual assault material. Oh. Because it's not like pornography. Pornography. Right. It's documentation of assault. That's very, very smart. So I think I'm I'm gonna keep looking into that to see kind of like how how that term is adopted, but I it makes sense to me. Yeah, no, that makes total sense to me. It doesn't flow quite as uh, nicely as I would like it to. Well, we could <laughs> refer to it as the acronym CSAM. Okay, so listeners, when you hear CSAM, that's what now we're you know. referring to. Hopefully you don't <laughs> have to listen to it too much, but this is the listen to the podcast. We're, yeah, we're I think SVU is more likely to have that acronym mentioned. Uh, yeah, I agree. I wanted to share something because I'm... we've been talking so much about this Erica Girardi, Tom Girardi case and Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and all of this. And I wanted to share something I read on the Instagram for the Bravo Docket, that podcast I, I was really, telling you about. I need to follow their Instagram account. You really do, because I'm just going to read you their most recent post, because this has been, like, the big question that has been asked a lot, which is, like, how, if she didn't know, how did she not see this $10 million dollars and how did she not see it, like, appear and then disappear? And how was that not suspicious? And what did it yeah. get spent on, right? Yeah. So they kind of break down some things that went public recently. So I'm just going to read you some hot takes from the Bravo docket. <laughs> so bankruptcy lawyers are claiming that $14,259,012.84 was charged to an EJ Global, which is Erica Jane Global, LLC American Express card from 2008 to 2020. Mm-hmm. Okay. And here's the breakdown of the payments. Allegedly, $102,000 was paid to Kim Kardashian's former executive assistant. Okay. This is how we're managing this money. Okay. $1 million, and change was spent on the McDonald Selznick Associates Agency, which represents dancers and choreographers. For a minute, I thought you were going to say they spent over a million do- dollars on McDonald's. Could and I was like, it? that is iconic. I know, right? Seriously. <laughs> and in one order. The $17,000 and change at Opus Beauty, which represents artists in the business. Okay. 8000 and change on E5 Global Media, which publishes Billboard and The Hollywood Reporter. Uh-huh. $1,000 on Makeup by Mario and $10,000 on, on LA Times Magazine. Okay. Insane. And so when they say, like, where did all this money go to? And she's like, I don't know where the, I don't oh, ask oh, me. Oh, when she's like, if there is money hidden, I would like to know where it is. Right. Well, this is it. Right, right. And <laughs> then they're like, already. where did it go then? Where did it go? Hello? Yeah. You, this is how you spent your money. <laughs> yeah. When people think about, like, oh, those big numbers, where could they go? That's where they go. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm by the day becoming more and more convinced of her complicity in all of this, or at least her willingness to look the other direction, which I think legally is being complicit. I know it's hard to not, especially the most recent episodes of the show are not making it any easier. No. Um, Do you have anything else? No. Okay. I wanted to share something with you. Great. (laughs) Don't sound too excited. (laughs) So as you know, we've been packing. Yes. And I always keep things from the past. So okay. I came across an old speak and spell. Do you remember those? 
No, what what is that? Oh my god, it was a toy from the like eighties and nineties. Oh, after my time or or before my time. What are the eighties? <laughs> I um, <laughs> and it was red and orange and like all these old, very that time colors. And like you a would light like bright. No, it was um picture like a really over really oversized calculator almost. Okay. Um, with a little readout screen, and you would type in the letters, and it would say the letters. And then you could type words in, and it would, like, speak the words back to you. Okay. And it was like a toy. I also had speak. How is that a toy? That sounds really boring. It was fun. Okay. All right. <laughs> Making it say things. Making a toy say things back in that, I mean, that time. I mean, I guess when you get to the point where you're like, say butt, say fart. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you put your own names in, and then you, you know, torture people. Um, yeah. Speak in uh, math, we had to. Not fun. Not fun at all. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so I found this old speaking spell, and there was a message already typed into it. Oh my god. It's from said, the past. It, from the past. It said that Ripped from the Headlines has a Patreon. Oh my god. How did they know back then? I don't know, but it, this relic is just beautiful. So <laughs> if you want to support us and help us continue to grow our show, check out our Patreon link on RippedHeadlinesPod.com. That's our cute little website. And there's a $1 level with the good feels of just supporting, you know, us independent podcasters out here who love you all very much. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a $5 level, which includes those positive feelings and also an exclusive ripped from the headline sticker designed by N. It's really it's cute. very cute. Love it. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> and access to our video episodes of Law & Order Fashion Court on that level as well. And then at our $10 level, you get all of this plus $10 off items in our merch store, which is basically all drawn by us as well. Now, here's what I need to know. Did the speak and spell have like enough memory to share a message that long? Oh, no. It only told me about the Patreon. I had to, I had to do oh, the, you the, did the rest. bidding. Yeah. Got it. Which I think Got it's it. weird that they knew about the Patreon and about the website because the internet wasn't even AOL back then. It wasn't No, that was like 40 years ago. Wow. I mean, time is a flat circle, am I right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> In that top level, you also get a bonus ripped from the headlines, full-length episodes where we cover Law & Order SVU episodes instead. So check those out. I think the last one we did was The Boyfriend Rapist. Yes. So, And if you would like to hear us also talk about Chris Maloney's butt, oh, that's the place to find it. That That is exactly where to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, shall we get into this week's episode? Let's do it. Well, this is season three, I still can't believe it, <laughs> episode two, and it's called Conspiracy. Mm. One of those non- non-creative ones. No. Well, at least they weren't doing like a nod to Overture, like those, oh, you know, the final yeah. instrument or whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but every one of those titles just reminds me of like the Titanic sinking and like the band playing. <laughs> You know what would be Drama. really fun is to come up with ridiculous titles for Law & Order episodes, and then the other person has to come up with what the plot line is for it. Like, the <laughs> final instrument, you would think would be about music, but I'm sure it's going to be, like, about doctor's tools. Like, and they were killing people with their final instrument or whatever. Oh, yes. Which reminds me, did you come up with a poorly placed platitude for this episode? I didn't. Did you? I did, so it's okay. Okay, I'm excited. And I wanted to ask, I, I came up with some guesses I want to make for the season. Did you come up with any guesses yet? I think I'm going to do the same guesses as last season, but just alter the numbers a little bit. Okay. Sh- should we do those now? Do you want to? Or I do you want to should, save it for... this is episode yeah. two. Yeah. 
And okay, so item number one, I'm of course gonna pick pieces of evidence picked up by. Can I? I'm gonna expand this a little bit. A pen, a pencil, or some other kind of implement that you wouldn't really use. A non-conventional yeah. uh, device that is so, found outside of the police <laughs> station yes, usually. Yes, for sure. Like the with the episode where they were using salad tongs. Exactly. I think that's that would have counted. So I'm going to say we're going to get... I'm going to aim for three again this season, even though I only got two last time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um... I'm only I'm gonna say only one dog discovery this season. Okay. And I'm gonna say how many beat cop openings did I do last time? You started with four and then you changed it to eight and you got okay. all eight. But I think you got exactly eight. Okay, I'm gonna do nine this year then mm. for this season. Up in the ante. Yeah. <laughs> Are you still gonna do trash discoveries for evidence? Oh, trash discoveries. Um, I'm gonna say there will be two of those. Okay, so you kept your same number for trash discoveries and dog discoveries, but you're upping beat cop openings and you're keeping three pieces of evidence and you're expanding the uh, criteria. Yes. Didn't I, last season, didn't I have two dog discoveries or was it only one that I was looking for? It was only one last season. Okay, so I'm doing one dog discovery per season, basically. <laughs> so far. that's That's been your record. <laughs> and what are your guesses? Okay, I came up with some just... Off-the-cuff ones, I think. Okay. Are you writing this down? No, I have it here. I'm going to copy okay. and paste it afterwards. Perfect. But here is what I'm going to go with. Okay. I'm challenging myself. I'm looking for five openings with a okay. couple in, like, some sort of intense conversation. But one that doesn't make a lot of sense. It. I don't even have to put that in because I, I know the writing of the show. Does. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be couples that are either, like, in a fight or in, like, okay. a very, like emotional moment of some type okay five of those we're gonna have four cases that shift does not want to take but stone takes them anyway okay six cases or no six in episodes where cragen will tell the detectives to do basic detective work <laughs> as the op as the option at the beginning yes. of the episode <laughs> we're gonna have seven off, uh, Detective Logan, mouth drop, I can't believe you just said that on TV moments. Oh, for us. Like, where we're like, did you really just say that? Like, I cannot believe that the writers let this even fly. I don't know how I feel about that one, because I feel like that's very subjective. Ooh. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you often impose rules on my guesses, so I'm imposing that one. Well, I, you, I'm you can be the, that one. You can be the criteria person for it. I guess that's true. You could tell me, and then if I feel it's appropriate. So I get the vote of whether it counts or not. Yeah. Great. And then lastly, this is an easy one, I think. Okay. It's eight, but I think it's going to happen a lot. Okay. Eight endings on the courthouse stairs. Oh, that's a good one. I felt like that's like a good counterpart to the eight openings with Beat Cops. Beat Cops. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Okay. Can I add one more guess? Yeah. I will, I'm going to say that we will see no less than 14 scrunchies mm. over the course of these seasons. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Wait, hold on. I'm writing this in. <laughs> okay. And if I get close, I'm going to go back to these first two episodes to see if they showed up. Okay. That's fair enough. I'll do the same. Okay. Okay. So speaking of the episode. Here we go. We begin with... There's a African-American Congress or AAC meeting happening. 
and there's an impassioned speech giver. It's this man, he's talking to the crowded theater, and he's speaking about how the black community has to make things happen for themselves because they're currently unsupported by others in the city. And he urges everyone to not be blinded by their anger, but instead to push forward and try to like find ways to to build up your own community, mm-hmm. and pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and he says, don't be distracted by hatred because we will have the last word. And then, you know, everyone is cheering. He's doing this, like, the general, like, walking off, shaking hands with everybody, pushing through the mm-hmm. crowd with his bodyguards moment. Yeah. And then we hear, like, three really loud sounds. Two of them are, like, clearly gunfire, the last two. And the speech giver, whose name is Marcus, is down. We see that he's been shot. And in the next scene, a cop who is hot as hell. Oh, my God, so hot. I was going to say the same thing. Like... Where did he look? I was like, you're not a cop. You're like a stripper in a cop's outfit. (laughs) I I was thinking also like you're a cop in a porn scene or something. Oh, totally. Out of control. He really was. So he tells Soretta that the victim was shot by a 38 and the suspect who fled was white with dark hair, according to most people. So in the hall, a man named Mr. Harlins, he's the guy who was watching the side door. So he's like a bodyguard. He's injured, he's shot in the leg, and he said that, you know, you got to look out for this guy because there was a bomb that was put in a trash can that caused a diversion before the shooting happened, which Mm -hmm. I did hear in the episode, but I would have... It wasn't clear, though. I would have never known. I thought it was three shots. For sure, me too. And then I was like, oh, the third shot was the guy in the leg. Um, I was like, oh, that that was a bomb. Got it. So Logan now notices one detail everyone agrees about on the suspect because so far we've had differing opinions of what he looked like according to them. Not anything you've seen on camera. Everyone said the same thing, but he says that everyone agrees that the suspect was a white male and Soretta says, Summer's here. And I was like, what? I didn't even know what that means. Am I missing something? Anywho, we got the title sequence and I was feeling creative a little bit. Yeah. So I decided to go out and buy a bunch of yarn and a loom. Uh-huh. A loom. A loom. Mm-hmm. And I, I begun a beautiful tapestry. It's a little like Carol King-ish. It's a little Wheel of Time-ish. Uh-huh. It's a little like Celtic naughty. <laughs> um, you know, I have almost finished it. I have to do the tassels at the end. I haven't learned that part yet, but the show came back on, so that's on hold. If there's not some company out there that's like some sort of like yarn macrame thing that set that's like slogan isn't like let's get naughty but with like K N O T T Y copyright they're, they're copyright I <laughs> trademark trademark that it's mine now <laughs> it's mine now I keep it now <laughs> <laughs> there was a skit on SNL back in the day I'll make this quick uh, Sherry O'Terry's skit my favorite person on the show and she played like an angry neighbor who wouldn't give kids back their stuff and like just yelled out into the street and Uh, one of the bits was like as she was yelling at someone like a football would fly in and she'd be uh, like hey and she'd pick it up and she'd go it's mine now i keep it now okay (laughs) (laughs) that's gonna be my future so anywho we're back and we find out that the man who died his name was marcus tate So Marcus Tate was killed by the gunshots, or so this doctor tells us, who is also very hot. Yes, also hot. I was like, this, they're getting they're getting wise. Yes. (laughs) And when the detectives get upstairs, they find that the widow Satama Tate is 
really grieving, but they want to talk to her. And a representative of Tate's, that's like a bodyguard, says, you're not welcome here. And we get this very, like, Logan versus this bodyguard storyline beginning of, yes. like, the black bodyguard and the white detective who don't like each other. <sighs> I don't even, I'm not even going to say anything else about that right now because yeah. the episode will speak for itself. 100%. So we have this back and forth, like, you're not welcome here, you can't come in, and then it gets kind of broken up by this legal counsel guy named Mr. Brooks who comes out and he says, just move along. And they eventually back off after some back and forth. And we learn back at the station with Cragen that Logan is not a fan of the AAC. No, what a shock. I I know, right? (laughs) And he calls them racists. And then they have some, you know, they do talk about what the AAC has put in the paper recently. And they have some they have said some sensational things about the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. But regardless, Cragen is like, we need their cooperation, so let's talk to them. And yep. Logan's like, they're not going to talk to us because they want to talk to a black officer. Like, he's all pissed off about it. Yeah. And I'm like, what is the big friggin' deal? So Cragen yeah. makes some kind of comment and says, like, oh, we'll have Malone canvas the area instead. Which I assumed was going to be a black officer that we'd see now doing that. Nope. But we just are meant to believe it happens. And bears no meaning. No, yeah. So, anyway, ignore the, the requests of the, the grieving family. <laughs> In the meantime, Logan and Soretta go to the AAC, and they talk to this very serious bodyguard again. I think his name is Otis. And the it's like borderline like sexual tension between him and Logan, honestly. I know. Half the time I was like, kiss him! I was like, seriously, I'd watch that. <laughs> so, <laughs> he said, we heard the boom of the bomb, and... I looked at Marcus, and 10 feet on his left, the man shot Marcus, was right there, and I couldn't get to him. And he says that he also saw him shoot the guy, Harland. And he says, In the leg. Yeah, in the leg. And he says that the guy had brown hair, he was around 35 years old, but, quote, all you white boys look alike. <laughs> and Logan, like, <clears throat> scowls. Yeah. And then the legal counsel from before is here again, and he says that he was saved from a life of the streets by Tate and you have it all wrong. And you know, you have to be out there looking for the the guy who did this and you shouldn't be focusing on us. And he says that they're all used to being targeted by hate groups. So this isn't unusual for him to, you know, need a lot of protection and need bodyguards and for something like this to happen. And he mentions that the KKK and the sons of Abraham have targeted them before. And then Logan says, what goes around comes around, huh? This is what I would consider a Logan mouth drop moment. Yeah, not great. Unbel- and I thought after he said that, there was going to be a something to say about that. But no. <laughs> Even the guy, the guy he said it to was like, listen, calm down. I, 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 <laughs> Anyhow, they go to speak with Satama Tate, who is Marcus's widow. Now she's feeling more up to it. And this is what a guest star. She is... Gloria Foster, she has won three Obies, which are like the off-Broadway awards, and she was the Oracle in the Matrix movies until her passing. Oh, wow. Yeah, and she was a really good actress in this. Yeah, she did well. There was, there. was This episode did have good actors in it, for the most part. I agree. I, I looked up a lot of these actors, and a lot of them had a lot of like credits to their name, just things that didn't maybe like resonate with me. 
but hers yeah. was pretty big. And then there was like even a um a quote from her acting teacher that said like when I watched her act, like she was like fully in it every time. She was afterwards mm. she would like cry after her performances because she was so emotional. Mm. Go you. So um, <laughs> she says that she was behind her husband Marcus when he was shot. And she saw the man's face, and she'll never forget it. So they do some detective work, and they dig up photos from previous AAC events. And they begrudgingly, it's like pulling teeth. The bodyguard actor is really laying it on thick. Like, I get it. You are tough-lipped, tight-lipped. You don't like this. So they finally get him to identify a white man from one of the photos. And he says, I'm not sure how I know him, but he's been around. I've seen him around. And he's like, all right, good enough. And then they have um, Ms. Tate come in, and she instantly identifies the man. She's like, I told you I'd know his face. That's his face 100%, and it's the same guy. Yeah. So back at the station, our three, you know, law guys are looking over all the photos they have of this man, and they notice that he has a shirt that said he's from Amherst College. So they go down to the school records, and they find that his name is Mitchell Koblen. Koblen, this right? was the the biggest like jump I think in detective work in this episode where they zoom in on a very grainy photograph to see a like logo on his t-shirt that is half obscured by like a backpack strap and then they're able to go oh it's the Amherst University lacrosse team and then through some kind of logic they just go there and start looking through all the yearbooks to try to match him mm-hmm that seems like a very difficult way to go about it. And they felt they really heavily relied on his his approximate age that people yeah. gave him of like around 35 to imagine when he would have graduated college and to assume right. he went to college right from high school and how many years did he, like that's a big it's, jump. Yeah. I would yeah, say that when they zoomed on that in that photo, I was like, okay, I from the photo, I can definitely see that it says like amherst college with some letters obscured like before they said it i was like oh that probably says amherst college Mm. but that was like a very poorly doctored photo (laughs) like they sharpened that area of that photo so much from the outside of it (laughs) yeah listeners when matt and i were first talking about starting this podcast one of the names that i had proposed was zoom and enhance (laughs) because they love to do that on law and order (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe as we go along as this uh show picks up down the line we can make it like a um like a segment or something oh, or like one of the guesses how many times will they zoom and enhance oh when we do svu as that yeah. goes on i know for sure we're gonna be like a million high tech million zoom and enhance per season yeah when did how many like uh new high tech gadgets did they get with <sighs> these like screens that tell you information you'd never know <laughs> Anyway. Once Vincent Wong comes on SVU, Ugh. I feel like they start to do a lot more like technology and like medicine stuff like that. BD Wong? I do too. Oh, yeah. Why did I say Vincent? I don't know, but I, I love... I don't even know who that is. I love BD Wong. He is yeah. so cute. Agreed. So adorable. Wow, I really got off on a tangent there. <laughs> <laughs> they go to talk to this Mitchell Koblen's parents who look like they're about to shoot an ad for like a senior living community in Boca. But a, a very sad one. A very sad one. Eating like almost sad like sad food on a paper plate. A, a TV show parodying. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. That's more accurate. Paper plate, sad food. That's the same color as the plate. Everything's really like washed out, unsaturated colors. And everyone's face looks like it's being dragged down slowly. 
<laughs> it's like an infomercial where somebody is struggling, but less theatrical. Exactly. Exactly. And they talk to this couple, and they're exactly how you'd expect them to be. And they soon catch wind about what that's all about. And they're like, ah, talk to our lawyer. So mm-hmm. they go find his ex-wife, who they're surprised to see is a black woman, because they had him pegged as a racist. But they're like, hmm, more to the story. And they say, she says that Mitchell was, Mitchell and her are not together anymore. Um, he was a supporter of Tate, and he would go to these rallies, and he's the one who got her into it in the first place. And she eventually got a job there like last year as a bookkeeper because she wanted to rub it in his nose because she realized that they weren't really in love, but he was like essentially fetishizing her for being black. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't go well, their relationship. And Mitchell accused her of infidelity with Marcus among all the other members. And so they're like, hmm, this is very interesting. A totally different angle. Yeah. They also discover that he was laid off last year from his teaching job. And now he's basically, I think, living at an athletic club? Yeah, I didn't quite get that connection. Yeah, but he's living But you know who he looks like? Who? Do you remember the movie Ghost? Yes. Remember the scary subway guy? He does. (laughs) He looks a lot like him. He does. I wrote down that he looked like a... um... Like an SNL character that Bill Hader would play. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, when they're in this athletic club that he might live in, they burst into like a private karate class randomly. And like you hear like, hi-ya! And I yeah. <laughs> literally would have spit my drink out of my mouth if I had a liquid in there. <laughs> Logan finds him in the basketball court and arrests him. And then like slaps him in the back of the head like a maniac. For no reason. No, no, I was no like, reason. why did you just hit him? No reason. And then they continue to use unnecessary force with him. And... Soretta pulls out a pen, like it's a magic wand, from his pocket, holds it in the air, like, da-da-da-da! And if I was an animator, this would be the time when I would be, like, planning out how to make, like, an animation of Soretta and Logan, each pulling out, like, a pen, and we'll have Logan do tongs, and they'll have an anime-style magical girl transformation. Oh my god, like Sailor Moon. Yes, yes. They just lift it in the air, and then... Transform. Maybe Soretta transforms into like his David the Gnome type personality. Yes. <laughs> and Logan now, just a pile of trash. <laughs> does that mean I get credit because he picked up evidence with a pen? Oh, definitely. Thank you. Definitely. Okay, because I was watching and I I actually gasped mm-hmm. when I saw it because I was so excited. And Miles, who was in the living room but not paying attention, was like, "What? What happened?" And I was like, "He picked it up with a pen." <laughs> I and honestly, I've never seen a more theatrical way have they've done it. They might no. they might as well have had like sword sounds like Fing, when you pulled it wouldn't out. Wouldn't you be wouldn't you be afraid picking up a gun from the trigger with a pen? I would be afraid it would slide off the pen and like fire. Yeah, me too. Not them. They're they're skilled with pens. They're they they're are. not just using like any ordinary bic. Mm-mm. So he uses the pen, he pulls out the gun from the trigger thing and um you know, I I would think you might need a warrant for this type of thing, but <laughs> hey, it's in this bag that they find, like, in the room. And in the next scene, we're back at the station, and we have Soretta, Mitchell, and his attorney in a questioning room. And the attorney is our final guest star. It's yeah. Eric Bogosian. Okay, I, I knew it. I recognized his face. I recognized his voice, but I couldn't place him. He's been in so many things. Yeah. Um, okay. He's in Succession currently, which I don't watch, but I know it's a great show. 
Oh, yeah, it's good. Um, he was in the movie Uncut Gems, which I've heard was amazing. Uncut Gems. And I don't think I saw that. he is. He will go on to be a cast member on Law and Order: Criminal Intent for like eight seasons. Oh, um, huh. he plays a, a DA, but a different DA than this one. Eric Bogosian. Yeah. I need to find out where I know him from. So I'm gonna shout out something in a minute. Okay. <laughs> he says through that two way mirror to Robinette that this guy is getting set up. He didn't do it, and we find out shortly afterwards that. They find a match to the bullet that shot that bodyguard in the leg to Copeland's gun. Not the ones that shot the uh, Tate, but right. they have enough now. And they're like, okay, um, we're going we're gonna to go forward with this. And we immediately switch over to the order section of the episode. And he, of course, pleads not guilty, so we'll have a trial. And Stone thinks it's a silver platter because <laughs> Mitchell has a history of being like, a menace a little bit at political functions and he mm-hmm. is part of some Jewish organizations. And we know that Tate recently made some slanderous remarks about the Jewish community, but mm-hmm. Schiff says it's a, so st- I can't stone thinks it's a so- stone thinks it's a silver <laughs> platter case. And Schiff says, but we need a silver spoon. <laughs> oh, God, we need the whole set. So we need motive. I, I can't the, the writers like high fived. When they oh, wrote they that one. For sure, high fived themselves. Kicked for each that. other under the desk. Um, so they decide to focus on the angle of like his quest to get his wife back instead. And they put her on the stand. We're immediately on trial. I like this. Not yeah. a lot of back and forth. No. And by the way, she will definitely be in fashion court, but in a good way, because I really oh. liked her outfits in this episode and her hair. <laughs> and the hot cop and hot doctor will be in there oh, too. Oh, for sure. In trial, uh, she's on the stand and she says that she was actually having an affair with Marcus. It was true. And then the defense has her revealing that he never, that the defendant Mitchell had never been retaliatory to her about it, even though he was upset. He'd never been violent with her. And then that kind of like tries to sway the jury. Next on the stand, we have Satima, the widow of um, Tate. And she recounts what she saw again, very tearfully, well acted. And the defense says that while she may have seen Mitchell with a gun after her husband was killed, she didn't actually see him fire any gun. She didn't see him shoot. So it could have been anybody. And a lot of people there had guns. And then the defense attorney, Lowenthal, also poses that there are men within the AAC, other black men, who were armed that night and who often disagree with Marcus's beliefs. Hmm. Stone objects a lot. This is like a pretty, like... In my opinion, a more realistic um, way Court. that like attorneys and um, lawyers try to get information in than we've seen yeah. previously. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think they're getting in the, the swing of it a little bit. Um, yeah. So Stone objects and the judge agrees that with no evidence to this alternative explanation, like you can't present that to the jury. So next up, the bodyguard Otis is on the stand and he says that he's positive that the defendant pulled his gun out and shot Tate. And he also says that he saw him shoot the other bodyguard. And he says, well, if you saw him shoot Tate and you were like that close to him, you're not a very good bodyguard, which I mean, (laughs) I would say that's kind of true. Um, And then he says that he kind of works him up. He kind of works him up because he kind of knows what his triggers are. And then the guy eventually stands up and says like some 
terrible racially charged statements about the Jewish community regarding the defendant and his lawyer and how they're going to let him get away with it. And Mm -hmm. then it like, it's very sensational. And after a brief recess, Mitchell takes the stand himself and he says that he was at the rally just to see his ex and that he pulled his gun when he heard the explosion because he was scared. And then he ran and that, yes, he did shoot the security guard on his way out in the leg because he got a gun pulled on him first and he was scared. Mm-hmm. And Stone then gets him to admit on cross-examination that he was very jealous about Tate and that he is, a quote, a little crazy. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> um, but it's still not a slam dunk. And the jury comes back guilty on possession three of a firearm, but mm-hmm. not guilty on possession two, attempted murder two, or murder two. And the courtroom, of course, erupts in anger and fury, and they're all upset, and we cut to the DA's chambers afterwards, and Schiff tells them, you know, we gotta just rewind, let's rewind and go over all the trial transcripts, and let's see what we find. Maybe we can do a retrial, maybe we can get it thrown out. So, Stone and Robinette eat sandwiches, <laughs> <laughs> and they decide that if Koblen's ex was being stalked by him... That she'd likely get a bodyguard, which would likely be Otis, and that would mean that he's lying. He would have known Copeland already. And so they investigate this, and it doesn't seem like it was hard to investigate it because they just flat out ask her. And she's like, oh, yeah. (laughs) And she just tells them, like, no one asked this question. Right. So she reveals that, yes, they'd actually even fought before. So Stone and Robinette also talk to the widow again, and she doesn't say very much. But Robinette goes, let me go back and try it alone. So he goes back and tries it alone, and he tries to reason with her, and he's saying that, you know, behind all of the issues of race that are that are here, what what is it about this that doesn't want you to get justice for your husband if that bodyguard is involved? Right. And she says, well, you're turning on your community, essentially. And mm-hmm. he says something to the effect of, the back of the bus attitude died a long time ago. And she responds, quote, Look into the hearts of the people you drink coffee with every morning. That bus has a long way to go. And she says, if he's right about these men in the AAC and they did do something to contribute Mm -hmm. to this, that they'll see justice on her terms. And he accuses her of withholding evidence and she doesn't deny it. And they kind of just have a unspoken (laughs) understanding. (laughs) And Robinette now believes that Books, that legal representative guy, and Otis, the bodyguard, set this all up because they started to disagree with Tate's politics being more, like, moderate. Right. And he poses this idea to Schiff and Stone um, and agrees, and they agree that they should question them as, and then try to, like, see if they'll give up information if they believe they have more than they have, which mm-hmm. essentially never works, but... Yeah. Stone's chat with Books and his attorney doesn't really turn anything up, besides that his attorney is, like, a robot from Westward, <laughs> Westworld <laughs> in a gray suit. Yeah. He's like, I'm not going to give you any information. <laughs> Put a cowboy hat on that guy. Yeah. Um, Robinette's meeting with Otis and his attorney gets nothing either, but then we go back to Stone talking with Books, and the suspect says that, you guys are just trying to cover your ass because you need scapegoats because you didn't get your guy and you want black ones. And he also argues that the defense just painted a very sexy, palatable picture for the jury and it's the same way Hollywood does and everybody just eats it up. And then we cut to the last scene with the DA's office trio heading out for the night and realizing that they have nothing on the case essentially to bring it back. 
And Robinette wonders out loud who was responsible. You know, if it, maybe it wasn't any of them, maybe it was someone else. And Schiff kind of like pats him on the shoulder and says, you know, it's a conspiracy. Blame it on the CIA. No one's fingered them for anything in a while. And he and Stone kind of walk out, leaving Robinette on his own in the room to muse about it. And then they kind of like hang on him for a while before they go off. Yeah. And in my mind, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm giving them too much credit here. But in my mind, this is Robinette thinking back to Satima telling him, to look at his colleagues that he sits with every day and how they really feel about him. Right. And he's kind of standing there thinking, this is going unsolved. Everyone's kind of okay with it. And kind of just walking out and saying, oh, another one's done. And he's standing there like, why? And then he's Mm -hmm. kind of like getting it. I think that probably, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they're clever enough writers. I know, I know. I'd like to think that's what it was because that's how it impacted me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I kind of felt like, ooh, that was like a little chilling and that's the end of the episode what is your poorly placed platitude okay and then i have to tell you this because remember we were like how do we pick what we're gonna say yes so i looked up just um tv tropes in law and order to see if there's anything they say about this yeah and it's a real there's a real term for this type of one-liner at the end of tv shows really and it's named after schiff shut up yes it's called a let's see a shift, Shiffism? a shift. Um, it might just be called a shift one-liner. Oh my god, I, I didn't write down the whole thing. But it's defined on TVTropes.org as a wry comment at the end of an episode, often highlighting the moral ambiguity of the amp- episode's outcome. Often found in legal or medical dramas, where very often there is no black and white morality, only shades of gray. It's a subset, a subset of the one-liner trope. Interesting. Yeah. So there is a real thing. And Schiff has like, it's called a Schiff one-liner, I think. Okay. So mine is. I like poorly placed platitude oh, better. But... totally. We're, we're keeping poorly placed platitude, but I like that we're, we're so hot on the pulse. <laughs> I, really? I mean, we are with the times. Okay. So I'm going to try to do a Schiff voice. We always knew that this case was muddy and never black and white. But the truth that we'll never know is probably more colorful than I dare to imagine. <laughs> That's pretty good. Also, I worked pretty hard on it. <laughs> that was kind of a stone voice. Oh, but that's what I meant. I meant a stone okay. voice, not a shift. A shift voice is I like, like ah! <laughs> Skeksky or uh, yeah, Batman. exactly Batman. Well, great job. Thank you. Are you ready to hear the true crime upon which this episode was based? I am, and I feel like they referenced a lot of actual people and, like, things in this episode, so... Yes. I just... It could be so many different things. And you you said you had some guesses, right? Not really, but I mean... I, okay. I, I mean, they mentioned Malcolm X, and they talk about um, some famous people that who were killed, and mm-hmm. so I'm assuming it's that world. Okay. Well, this episode was kind of a... Portmanteau, perhaps, is the word I would choose. I don't know if I'm using that right, though. I like the way Uh, it sounded, though. Thank you. Um, I think that's actually like two words smashed (laughs) together, so that might not work. Um, But essentially, I could have chosen one of like four or five different high-level assassinations that have happened throughout history. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I intended to watch the episode and then see like what it was closest to before I did all my research, but then I just did all my research and thankfully it definitely is closest to the story I picked. Oh, great. Okay. I'm so so excited. 
This is the story of the assassination of Malcolm X. Mm, I had a feeling. You were right on there. Good job. Thank you. I, didn't, I mean, it just felt from the jump, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So this was a really interesting case to research because I definitely didn't learn much about Malcolm X in any kind of like history classes or social studies or anything like that. Other than like, I've always kind of heard him like pitted against Martin Luther King Jr. Yes, that's, you know, very, I'm in the same ballpark. I even right now know very little about Malcolm X, so I'm being very transparent. Well, here we go. You're about to learn a bunch of new stuff. I'm excited. I want to. Okay. So Malcolm X was born Malcolm Little on May 19th of 1925, which when I was writing that, I was kind of blown away that that was almost 100 years ago because it just seems so much more recent in my mind than that. Yeah. Um, Born in Omaha, Nebraska, his parents were named Louise Helen Little and Earl Little, and Malcolm was the fourth of seven children. Oof. Yeah, big family. Malcolm's father was a Baptist preacher as well as a leader in local organizations focused on improving conditions for Black Americans. Um, However, as was very common, especially in you know, the early 1900s, but still today, Mm -hmm. uh, his organizing work garnered the attention of various organizations that were opposed to uh, Black Americans gaining equality. What? Right? Specifically, the KKK uh, kind of set their sights on Earl Little. I'm I'm like very impressed um, that he was fighting that fight at that time. In the 1920s, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's like a, I would imagine anyone fighting to further anything for black folks back then just thought that an an end is probably death. Yeah, for sure. So, and, you know, they threatened him and his family multiple times. And just before Malcolm was born, actually, the KKK rode out to their home in Omaha and like on their horses with torches and guns. And, you know, demanded he come out of the house. Presumably they were going to kill him. Uh, His wife, uh, Helen, Louise Helen, answered the door. She was pregnant with Malcolm at the time. And she was like, my husband's not here. And they ended up riding away, but not before they, like, rode their horses all around their house and used their, like, the butts of their rifles to shatter all of the windows of the house. Oh, my God. Which is so terrifying to think about. That's so menacing. Yes. And a year later, they ended up burning down their family home. So Hmm. that was kind of Malcolm X's pre-birth and like right after. So because of this, the Littles ended up relocating to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and eventually to Lansing, Michigan in 1926. So at about one year old is when Malcolm X was living in Lansing, Michigan. Mm -hmm. Um, However, you know, racism is not specific to any one area. And in Lansing, they continued to be harassed by a racist organization called the Black Legion, um, which I actually don't think I ever learned about before. And they, yeah, they're a splinter group of the KKK. Essentially, it's just another group of white supremacists who maybe they had some kind of ideological differences with the KKK, but essentially they still were pro-white folks and and uh, anti-everyone anti else. else, yeah. Yeah. So the Black Legion, just a quick thing on them, they're responsible for having killed more than 50 people, including local, or including prominent political organizers. 
And their membership at this time included the police chief of Detroit. Oh, how nice. Right? It's like when, when everybody's like, <laughs> why aren't the police showing up to the KKK rallies? Well, maybe they're there. <laughs> they are. Yeah, they're yeah. busy. So the Black Legion's focus, focus was on Earl because of his political organizing, but also because he had like been pretty vocal about believing that the KKK and or the Black Legion had burned down his family's house. So they like didn't want him saying that. Uh, and so we're kind of harassing him. Mm-hmm. And uh, in kind of like a later interview in life, Malcolm X would recall that when his house burned down, he, it was like really evident to him that all of the emergency responders like refused to do anything. Like the white police and firemen came and just stood and watched the house burn down. Wow. In 1931, when Malcolm was only six years old, his father Earl died in what was officially declared a streetcar accident. A streetcar being like, you know, a a trolley type thing. Okay. Malcolm's mother, however, believed that Earl had been murdered by the Black Legion, and a lot of community members believe this as well, and, and many still do to this day. And they believe that the real story is that he had been beaten to death by members of the Black Legion and then, like, placed on the streetcar rails to hide his actual cause of death. Okay. Oh, okay. And in later life, Malcolm X would express that he was really conflicted about what had actually happened to his father. He didn't really know what to believe about that. Um, But regardless, his father's death caused the family some pretty intense emotional and financial hardship. Sure. Because remember, this was 1920, or wait, what did I say? 1931. Mm -hmm. Uh, So not a lot of women in the workforce at this point. And he being their kind of like main income earner, uh, they they fell on some financial hard times. Mm -hmm. And this was compounded, of course, by the fact that this was also the Great Depression. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. And in addition to this, the family was unable to claim Earl's life insurance plans because they believed that Earl had, they claimed, and the reason they denied the insurance payouts was that they claimed that Earl had died by suicide. Okay. So they were like, nope, we're not giving you any money. In 1937, his mother Louise uh, became pregnant from a man that she had been dating who she had planned to marry. So this was, you know, some years after Earl had died. And when the man she was dating found out that she was pregnant. He disappeared. He like completely ghosted oh her. Oh my God. Which resulted in Louise having a, what's described as a nervous breakdown and was committed to a state hospital. Okay. The seven children were split up and sent to different foster homes. Oh my God. That's terrible. Yeah. Um, Malcolm X was sent to a foster home to live with a white couple who he described, like, didn't treat him badly, but they treated him more like a pet than a human being. <laughs> Louise would remain in state custody for over tw- for 24 years, actually, before Malcolm and his siblings were able to secure her release. So Malcolm X talks about how he didn't see his mother for, like, more than 20 years. I can't even imagine. Yeah. So when Malcolm was kind of a... a teenager, you know, young adult. He was a really good student. He was a really good student in high school. He was academically near the top of his class, Hmm. but he was the only black student in an entirely white school. And they were like going around in the classroom and asking the kids, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And Malcolm X told the teacher that he wanted to be a lawyer. And the teacher apparently said something like, oh, you should set your goals more realistically. Like, why don't you be a carpenter? And said, quote, 
that a lawyer was no realistic goal for an N-word. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. Malcolm was pissed and ended up dropping out of school. Mm. So he didn't end up completing high school, but he went to live with his half-sister when he was 15. So he was 15 years old at this time. And worked in a variety of jobs in Boston before he ended up moving to Harlem um, at about 17 years old. Okay. During this time, he, or kind of in Boston, and I think also as he went into New York, he was working for the railroad companies and kind of like enjoyed the traveling aspects of railroad life, according to some of the things that I read. Okay. Was he like living alone now in Manhattan or was he with his cousin still? Or maybe um, I think at this point he was living alone. Okay. So he was like supporting himself. Yes. And during that period, he was uh, also doing some drug dealing, some gambling, some racketeering, some robbery, and some pimping. Mm-hmm. So he was, you know, doing some things that aren't exactly legal to make ends meet. The whole gamut. Yes. And some of the recent biographies, so this is something that's like hotly contested. Some documents claim that Malcolm X was potentially bisexual or, you know, or had sex with men as well as women. And that sometimes this was for money, but that was, it's very disputed. His family pretty ardently argues against it, but there's a number of like academic articles and and books written about his life that do talk about that. So it's it's just something that's there's going to be, I think, forever disagreement on. Yeah, I feel like that's such like a stigmatized thing. Yes. It's never yeah, going to, sure. yeah, it's understandable why it would be. Right, especially for a, a black man in the 1930s. Oh, and such a public one, too. Right, who's, exactly. Who's supposed to be, like, a leader. Yes. Yeah. So Malcolm received a notice to report for the draft for World War II, but <laughs> he was able to fake mental illness to get his way out of it. Uh, he, This is a direct quote from him. He said, when they, like, questioned him, he pretended to kind of, like, be talking to nobody, and he said things like, "I want to be sent down well. I want to be sent down south. Organize them, N-word soldiers. Steal us some guns and kill us some crackers." And so the the <sighs> army was like, "We're all good. Thank you." Hard and, pass. Uh, <laughs> and declared him uh, unqualified for military service. I have heard that that is very hard to do. I think I think so. In I remember my high school government teacher, he was drafted into Vietnam, um, and he talks about how when he was drafted, they, you know, they take you to whatever the location is for, like, the initial assessment, and they say, like, go in that room, sit down in the chair, and we'll start the assessment. And essentially, that process actually was the assessment. Like, if you could hear those instructions and interpret them Mm. and take action appropriately. You were mentally fit. Your hearing was good enough to hear them. Your eyesight was good enough to spot the door, open it. And your physical mobility was good enough because you were able to get there and sit in the chair. That is very sneaky. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe Um, offensive, but impressive. (laughs) Yeah. In 1945, Malcolm was arrested for some of his illegal activities, and he ended up, and he was sentenced eight to ten years in prison, and he ended up serving six years in prison. While he was in prison, Malcolm met another inmate named John Bembry, who Malcolm credits as, like, really getting him into reading, and apparently Malcolm had a, like, voracious appetite for reading when he was in prison. Mm. And 
while he was incarcerated, his siblings all kept in touch with him, writing him letters. And they told him about an organization called the Nation of Islam and told him that, you know, it's it's great. You should get involved with it. You should join the Nation of Islam. And let me tell you a little bit about the Nation of Islam. Okay. This is By all the way, I know about Muhammad. I'm sorry, about um, Malcolm X is that he was part of the Nation of Islam. That's it. Okay, so I hope, as I was researching this, do you ever have moments where you're like, I hope I didn't say something like like incorrectly in a previous episode? Oh, yeah. I think I didn't know a whole lot about the organization, the Nation of Islam, and I hope whenever I have referenced Islam in the past that I haven't said like all folks are who are Muslim are members of the Nation of Islam. I hope I didn't say that because it's a specific religious political organization that's like a branch off of Islam, but, or bra- yeah, a branch off of Islam, but all, by no means are all Muslims members of the Nation of Islam. Okay. I don't think you've said that, but let's, let's okay. consider this your uh, correction on yourself if you have said it. And <laughs> Thank you. Uh, everyone out there, we have learned and we're growing. Yes. So the Nation of Islam, which I watched like a five part documentary series on Netflix, um, One of the folks, like the kind of main narrator of the documentary refers to them as Noai, which is much shorter to say than Nation of Islam. So I might use that periodically because I'm going to say that name a lot. Okay. Do you remember the name of the documentary? Um, Yes, it's called Who Killed Malcolm X. Okay. And it actually just came out, I think, this year or last year. Yeah. I think it might be really recent. And I'm actually going to talk about it at the very end. Oh, okay. Perfect. So the Nation of Islam was a religious and political organization founded in the United States in 1930 by a man named Wallace Fard Muhammad. And while it was connected to Islam, Muhammad is described as having kind of like idiosyncratically interpreted elements of both the Quran and the Christian Bible and kind of made this interpretation of Islam that w- that is stated as being considerably different from mainstream Islamic traditions. Okay. For example, in contrast with what was described as like general Islamic beliefs, which I am not well-versed in, the Nation of Islam believed that Wallace Fard Muhammad was actually a, like a, a prophet or an incarnation of God. And his son, Elijah Muhammad, ended up being kind of like the leader of the Nation of Islam and was seen as like a prophet and, you know, able to speak to God, etc. Um, okay. So... In addition to kind of like the religious aspects of the Nation of Islam, it was also a social movement, which has been described as kind of categorized as like either black nationalist or black separatist. And essentially, they believed that the integration of black and white races is essentially a failed experiment. And they believed that we needed to establish a sovereign African-American nation state within the United States and kind of referenced Israel as sort of the precedent for that when Israel was uh, declared a sovereign state for Jewish folks. Got it. Um, And it also advocated for an eventual return to Africa for all the people of the African diaspora. So this is what some of the tenets of like what people of the nation of Islam believe, not necessarily people who are Islamic. Correct. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, um, 
Suffice it to say, Malcolm's siblings eventually persuaded him to join the Nation of Islam, and it was during this period that he also adopted the name of Malcolm X. And X is is something that a number of followers of the Nation of Islam adopted as their last name as kind of a signifier of the names we have been given are from the descendants Uh. of enslavers. And like, we don't know our true family names because they were taken away from us. Um, So he refused to go by Malcolm Little. And actually, I watched this interview where somebody's like, what's your real last name? And he was like, it's not my last name. So I'm not going to tell you that because I am choosing X as my name. Mm. So um, I never knew that. Yeah, I didn't either. It makes a lot of sense to me. Totally. So in 1948, when he was in prison, he wrote to Elijah Muhammad, who is the current leader of the Nation of Islam. And they would begin pretty regular correspondence. And um, Muhammad encouraged Malcolm X to, like, renounce his criminal past, to accept God, and to promise to, like, never engage in destructive behavior again. So they were developing a pretty close um, camaraderie or relationship um, by correspondence when Malcolm X was in prison. Okay. In 1950, when uh, North Korea invaded South Korea... A number of countries, but principally the United States, sent military aid to South Korea, the Korean War. And this, of course, was, you know, portrayed to the American public as we have to do this to prevent the spread of communism, even though North Korea is a dictatorship, not a communist state. Mm. Uh, When... He, when news of this reached Malcolm X in prison, he ended up writing a letter to then-President Harry Truman. And I tried really hard to find the actual letter, but I couldn't, I couldn't find it. But everything, you know when you read a lot of articles and they call, all kind of like regurgitate the same two sentences mm-hmm. about something? Yes. <laughs> all I could really get out of that was that in the letter he expressed opposition to the Korean War and stated that he was a communist. Who, who did? So... Uh, Malcolm X. Okay, okay, okay. So this caused the FBI to open a file on Malcolm X and to begin surveilling his activities. And at one point, in later release of some of the FBI documents on Malcolm X, they found a letter that, or a, or a memo that J. Edgar Hoover had written, who was then uh, director of the FBI, to, quote, do something about Malcolm X. <sighs> so we'll come back to that. Malcolm X was paroled in 1952, and when he was paroled, he visited Elijah Muhammad, and a few months later, he was named assistant minister of one of the um, NOI temples in Detroit. Hmm. Okay. And now, Elijah Muhammad, oh, just I just yeah. am trying to get a mental image. Is he, like, much older than Muhammad? Um, um, I keep saying Muhammad Ali. Malcolm X, or is he, like, of the similar age? That's a great question. Um, He was born in 1897, so he was like 20, 30 years older than Malcolm X. Okay, because I'm picturing like an older mentor, and I'm wondering if I should be picturing like a colleague. No, some of the things that I read describe their relationship as a kind of father-son dynamic. And, you know, Malcolm X really, he credited in the beginning, he really credited Elijah Muhammad for helping him to turn his life around and to like see his value and self-worth and all of that. So he, he says he got a lot of really great things out of this relationship that they had. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So um, Malcolm was described as a very impressive, very charismatic person. He was six foot three and 
one of the articles I read described him as, quote, mesmerizingly handsome and always well put together. And so they kind of talk about how this, in combination with his, like, really good speaking skills, made him this really dynamic presence for the Nation of Islam. I mean, that's that's what you need to be, like, a big public figure that's going to that's gonna get people's attention. Yes, 100%. So over the course of the next year, um, X was able to grow the ministry of the Detroit temple. He ended up founding another temple in Philadelphia and then was selected to lead another in Harlem where he rapidly grew the membership. Um, and he also, he, during this time, he recruited professional boxer who I think most of us know conventionally as Muhammad Ali, mm-hmm. but he, his birth name was Cassius Clay. And when uh, uh, Malcolm X convinced him to join the Nation of Islam is when he adopted the name Muhammad Ali. Right. And now at this point, Malcolm X, he's growing like lead, he's growing numbers for the Nation of Islam. Yes. And he's teaching, like, strictly straight from what Muhammad has taught him. Absolutely, Okay, got it. Okay. So it's estimated that within a 10-year period of 1950 to 1960, the Nation of Islam grew from a membership of only 500 people to over 75,000 people. And a large portion of the credit for that, nobody says, like, that was because of Malcolm X, but a lot of people say, like, he was really instrumental in this, like, meteoric rise in in, uh, enrollment with the Nation of Islam. Yeah, if this was a pie chart, he'd have the biggest piece of that pie. (laughs) Yes, yes. So this concerned the FBI because they suspected that, you know, he had written this letter saying, I'm a communist. The government at this period of time was like freaked out about anybody who was in any way like deviating from like the norm. And they, you know, were really focused on on Malcolm X because they were so concerned about him being this really charismatic leader who was gaining a lot of followers for supposedly uh, concepts that were antithetical to the United States, that they were really concerned about oppressing. Mm, okay. So um, X would go on to found another number, uh, a number of other temples in Springfield, Massachusetts, Hartford, Connecticut, Atlanta, Georgia, and with hundreds of members joining the NOI every month. In 1955, uh, Malcolm X met and married a woman named Betty Sanders, Um, who would also adopt the last name of X, and together they would have a total of six daughters. Yeah, okay, so I'll I'll come back to the the children. I wonder if he was, like, disappointed that he didn't have any male children that he could then have, like, marketed as the X-Men? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But, I mean, actually, that's weird that you say that, because I'm going to come back to that at the end. That's really interesting. And I just have to say, Betty X is a pretty badass name. That actually is a pretty badass name. (laughs) So, on April 26th of 1957, a member of the Nation of Islam was attacked and beaten by two police officers. Mm -hmm. And when this happened, three members of the NOI were present and witnessed the police attacking this man. And, like, went up to tell the police, like, stop, like, stop attacking him, etc. And when they did this... One of the police turned around and beat the shit out of one of them. His name was Hinton Johnson, and he suffered as a result of his injuries from the police attack, brain contusions, and subdural hemorrhaging. And then the police arrested all four of them and took them to jail. 
Okay. One of the witnesses informed Malcolm X of the assault, and Malcolm X was, of course, upset by this. He went to the police station uh, with a group of other uh, Muslims and members of the Nation of Islam demanding to see Johnson to make sure that he was alive, that he was getting medical care. And the police originally were like, no, we're not going to let you see him. Wow. But when the crew, when the crowd outside the police station grew to more than 500 people, they eventually were like, okay, you, Malcolm X, you can come in and speak with him. Wow. So he was allowed to speak with Hinton Johnson. And when he saw him, he saw that he was super injured. And so he demanded that they take him to a hospital to be treated. How long, can I ask how long that, do you know how long it took for that crowd to grow that high? Oh, how long it took them to grow to 500? Yeah. I don't think it was very long. Jeez. And let me, here's why I don't think that. In the time that it took for Johnson to be transported to the hospital, treated for his injuries, and transported back, all which happened in the same day by the accounts I was able to find, mm-hmm. the crowd outside of the police station had grown from 500 to 5,000 people. <gasps> oh, wow. So. Malcolm X and a lawyer were talking with the police and they were able to make arrangements for bail for two of the men, um, but they refused to grant bail to Hinton Johnson because police said that he had to wait until after his arraignment the next day. This, of course, didn't make them happy, but some of the things that I read essentially say that Malcolm X realized he wasn't going to win this fight with them. Mm Mm-hmm. And was kind of like, okay, we've gotten two of them out. Like, we'll we'll continue to address this, but we need to, like, move on from this today. So he walked out to the crowd of thousands outside the station and gave them a hand signal, and they all dispersed. Ooh, wow. When I read that, I got, like, goosebumps. Because that is some, like, tight-knit, like, shared struggle level stuff you know like yeah. if if one person like we trust this one person enough to trust that they are doing the right thing on behalf of these thousands of people that is like a like the biggest hive mentality like moment yeah wow totally super interesting so as you can imagine the police were not big fan of malcolm x's mm. and when they spoke with the reporters and they had seen the crowd disperse after malcolm gave them this hand signal they said that no one man should have that much power and so the nypd then began surveilling malcolm x as oh, well God. and they assigned undercover officers to go undercover in the nation of islam mm-hmm So Malcolm X continued to be a visible presence for the Nation of Islam. He would speak on radio and television. He was interviewed by newspapers. And in 1960, he was actually invited to the United Nations General Assembly and was like introduced to a lot of world leaders. And one of the articles says that he met essentially like every leader of every country in Africa at some point. Wow. So a little bit about kind of what he was preaching at this time. So this was, of course, the time of the civil rights movement. And Malcolm X was pretty critical of the NAACP and other civil rights members like Martin Luther King Jr. um, Because he felt that uh, he and he encouraged members of the NOI to not participate in voting and other aspects of the political process because um, he's, he argued, and this was, I can't remember if this is a direct quote or somebody writing this, but I thought it was so art, like well-spoken. 
it, he equated that to going to the source of illness for the cure. Oh, Does that make sense? yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So the NAACP also kind of like didn't love him as much as they didn't, he didn't love them. They called him an irresponsible extremist and said that his views and the views of the Nation of Islam did not represent the majority of black Americans. Um, Because X believed that the civil rights leaders in the black community were essentially like, you know, you've heard the Audre Lorde phrase, like using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. No. Right? Oh, okay. Essentially like, Audre Lorde has this quote, and I can't remember exactly what it's from or what writing it's from, but she says that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Like, you can't use the tools of your own oppression or, like, the tools that allow for oppression to happen to dismantle it. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. It's like kind of like um, that Brene Brown episode where she talks to... Oh, um, oh God. Anyway. They're talking about the ladder, the analogy. Yes. It kind of reminds me of that. Like you, the ladder is the oppression. The ladder is the whole system. Yes. It's not like a ladder against the system. It's like, it is the whole system. Exactly. So Malcolm X, in contrast to many of the other civil rights leaders, believed that black Americans should achieve equality. And he's really famous for saying by any means necessary. And that kind of put him at odds with other civil rights leaders who were really advocating for nonviolent responses and participation in like voting processes and politics, etc. As I said, he also preached that black Americans needed their own sovereign state. And this was in pretty stark contrast to the other civil rights leaders who were instead advocating for desegregation. So it was really interesting to have these two very, very prominent civil rights, black power movements happening at the same time, kind of preaching opposites for a little while. Yeah, which is confusing. Yeah. Malcolm X's relationship with the Nation of Islam, and in particular, his relationship with the leader, Elijah Muhammad, encountered a number of issues. Um, First, Malcolm X felt that the Nation of Islam had failed to respond to a very severe incident of police violence, where a uh, a fight had escalated and resulted in 70 police officers, for no apparent cause that I could find, entering a mosque and assaulting random members of the Nation of Islam. Like, 70 police officers just bust into a mosque and beat the shit out of people. Okay. So, again... Malcolm X was like, by any means necessary, so he felt that they needed to respond in kind. But Elijah Muhammad was like, absolutely not. We are not going to fight the police. And that apparently was like a big moment of schism between Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad. Mm. Um, But there were many other complicating factors that kind of led to the dissolution of their relationship. Uh, One of the large things being that At this time, rumors began circulating that Elijah Muhammad was having extramarital affairs with secretaries within the Nation of Islam, which is in direct contradiction to the the core tenets of the beliefs of the Nation of Islam. So he, it looks like he lost a lot of respect for Elijah Muhammad because of that. Mm, Okay. And... Another moment that kind of fractured their relationship, um, when JFK was assassinated, Malcolm X was interviewed, and he said that JFK's assassination was a case of, quote, chickens coming home to roost, which essentially is like, you reap what you sow kind of thing. So he, it, a lot of people heard it 
as just like he got what was coming to him. Oh yeah. Uh. And so that upset a lot of people. Sure. And it caused the nation of Islam to essentially like sever ties with X or to tell him like, you cannot speak publicly for the next 90 days. And Malcolm X at that point was apparently like, fuck that. So pretty soon after that, he left the nation of Islam. Mm, Okay. And another complicating factor that caused that kind of divide was it looks to looks like in many of the readings, it looks like Elijah Muhammad was perhaps jealous of the amount of attention that Malcolm X was getting, that he was getting way more focus than him as the later leader of the nation of Islam. Yeah. So on March 8th of 1964, Malcolm X stated that he had officially broken with the nation of Islam and stated essentially that that organization, the Nation of Islam, had achieved as much as they could and that they were too rigid and they weren't real willing to, uh, you know, go the extra mile to make change happen. Mm. And at this point, he also stated an interest in working with other civil rights leaders and stated that Muhammad had prevented him from doing so in the past. So the the period of time when he's with the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X claims that he wanted to collaborate and work with these other civil rights leaders that he supposedly was like being pitted against, but that Elijah Muhammad had prevented him from doing so. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Does Elijah comment mm-hmm. on that? I didn't find anything from him specifically about that, mm-hmm. but there's, there's all, I'm actually going to touch on that a little bit more later on. Okay. So Malcolm X continued to be a very public figure in the Black Liberation Movement, Civil Rights Movements, and in April of 1964, he gave a speech titled The Ballot or the Bullet, which encouraged Black Americans to exercise their freedom by participating in the voting system, but essentially said that if we are unable to earn our equality through these means, we should be prepared to take up arms. Ooh, okay. So that was not particularly well received by a lot of white Americans. You don't say. Um, <laughs> however, in recently recovered um, writings of Malcolm X's that had been excluded from his biography or his autobiography, which was uh, published posthumously, historians have found that Malcolm X's position around participating in the voting system had actually begun to shift years before he gave this speech, even though this kind of moment where he's like, yes, let's participate in voting and kind of that more public alignment with the strategies of the other civil rights leaders is kind of like credited to a period of time when he went on what's called a Hajj, I believe is how it's pronounced, H-A-J-J, which is a a pilgrimage to Mecca. Mm -hmm. And there he kind of like saw other folks of the world, both like black and white and other races working together. And so he credits that as kind of like a moment of transformation for him. Like he was seeing different things than what he saw in the United States. And he was like, okay, other strategies are possible. Right. So he saw possibility and he saw like, yes, expanded his, uh, his beliefs. Yes, for sure. After this pilgrimage to Mecca, Malcolm X officially changed his name to El-Haj Malik El-Shabazz, but was still, like, popularly known as Malcolm X and would refer to himself as Malcolm X in various, like, things he would write, things he would, you know, speak on, etc. So I'm going to continue to refer to him as Malcolm X. It's a little more punchy. Yeah. (laughs) 
1964, as I said, uh, he was invited to the United Nations a few years before. He was now kind of traveling the world to meet political leaders. And as I said, he, by 1964, had met with every political leader in Africa and had actually been offered political positions within several African nations. After speaking at the University of Ibadan in Nigeria, the Nigerian Muslim Students Association bestowed him with an honorary Yorube uh, name of Omawale, which means the son who has come home. Mm. And Malcolm X would, it sounds like many times and throughout his life, say that that was one of the things that he treasured the most oh, in his life. That's, that's pretty beautiful. Yeah. He continued to be a really sought-after speaker, and one of the articles I read say that at this period he was actually one of was actually the most sought-after speaker on college campuses in the United States. I could I could see that. For sure. 100%. So, after traveling the world, as I said, he kind of came to reevaluate his positions on the civil rights movements and on uh, dismantling racism. But as I, you know, that's, it's kind of contested because a lot of people attribute that to specifically his time traveling in Africa, whereas some of these earlier writings indicate that perhaps he had held these positions years before. So not 100% clarity on that. It's not debated that he has this uh, change of heart, but it's just debated the timeline and the catalyst. I'm going to say yes for now, but I'm going to complicate that a little bit later on. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. In June of 1967, he founded the Organization of Afro-American Unity, which was focused on racism as the enemy of justice, where when he was with the Nation of Islam, it was, many of the teachings were about like white people. And so again, this was kind of like a, a shift of, it's not the people, it's the system of whiteness, of white oppression that is the problem. Mm -hmm. So some of this, some people refer to this as like his more moderate stance, but it ended up garnering him even more widespread acceptance. Um, his hope for the organization of Afro-American unity was to engage in mainstream civil rights activism in a way that he had been unable to do when he was a member of the Nation of Islam, which was pretty expressly militant. So... Again, all of the attention he was getting and his kind of what is described as a shift in perspectives grew the rift with Elijah Muhammad and other members of the NOI as well. Uh, because again, they were like not gaining prevalence. Their like kind of golden child had defected by the public perception kind of like gone over to the other side of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So they didn't like that too much. And at this point, um, Malcolm X started getting uh, a number of death threats. And at one point, a nation of Islam leader ordered the bombing of Malcolm X's car. <sighs> he received threatening phone calls, one of which was recorded by the FBI, because remember, they were surveilling him, telling his wife, Betty, she was on the phone, she answered the phone, the FBI recorded it, that her husband was as good as dead. Oh, that's nice. Right. The FBI also apparently got a tip during this time, uh, potentially by one of their undercover officers, that uh, Malcolm X's death was like being orchestrated, that it was going to happen. And on July 9th, a member of the Nation of Islam and close aide to Elijah Muhammad stated that, quote, anyone who opposes the Honorable Elijah Muhammad puts their life in jeopardy. <laughs> that guy is a suspected undercover FBI agent. 
Oh, that's so. right. I forgot they had infiltrated. Yeah. So interesting that this undercover FBI agent is... Well, we'll, we'll come back to that. I'm going to talk about the FBI a fair amount later on. Okay. So... Malcolm X was interviewed about the threats he received during this time. He was actually interviewed and got like kind of a a photo spread in Ebony Magazine. And you might have seen this photo. It's one of the kind of the notorious photos of Malcolm X where he's like kind of like pushing back the curtains on his living room window while holding a like automatic weapon. Oh, no. Like a big, a big machine gun. And it's kind of a, for the Ebony Magazine, it's like a, I'm going to say dramatization, but it's not really a dramatization when it was actually happening, of how much he was feeling threatened by the threats that he was receiving. I'm looking at the photo now. I've never seen this photo. Yeah, it's kind of... It's it's impactful. It's it's an impactful photograph. On February 14th, Malcolm X's family uh, with Betty, or, or sorry, their, his family home where he lived with Betty and at the time their four daughters was firebombed, but Malcolm X was able to escape without injury and his family was kind of relocated to a location that wasn't revealed to people to kind of protect them from being found. Mm-hmm. I will say some of the things I read about this firebombing incident... <laughs> And, and there's actually an interview with Betty where she's like, that is the most fucking ridiculous thing I've ever heard. A lot of people were like, oh, he probably did that himself to get attention. Like, he's doing all of this himself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, he would just burn down your home for attention. Yeah, terrorize your family. Right. On February 19th, 1965, Malcolm X told an interviewer that the Nation of Islam was actually actively trying to kill him and said, quote, I feel like a man who is dead already. Mm. Two days later, he was scheduled to give an address to a meeting of the organizers of African American Unity, uh, sorry, Afro American Unity, which was the group he had helped to found. And it was scheduled for the Autobahn Ballroom in New York. Last minute, the opening speaker for the event pulled out of the event and was like, I'm not going to, I'm not speaking. And so when this other speaker pulled out, X, Malcolm X sent his assistant, whose name was Benjamin Goodman, to make the opening remarks to the crowd to kind of be like, hey, everybody, thanks for coming. I'd like to introduce our speaker today, et cetera, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in the ballroom were about 400 people, and Benjamin Goodman kind of like said hello to the crowd, greeted them, and then introduced Malcolm X by saying, I now introduce you to a man that would give his life for his people. Oh. Malcolm X walked to the podium and greeted the crowd with the Arabic greeting, As-salamu alaykum, which means peace be on to you. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I practiced. Mm. And um, when he, after this, a a scuffle kind of like broke out in the audience. Like there was hubbub and and whatever. And you can hear Malcolm X on the microphone saying like, like, settle down, settle down. He thought it was just like audience disruption kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So then you can hear... On this recording, somebody yell, get your hand out of my pocket, and then shit starts to go wild. A man near the back of the ballroom lights a makeshift smoke bomb and tosses it forward in the bath in the ballroom. Oh my god. So this this smoke bomb starts like emitting gas that, you know, people are screaming because it's scary. Right. And as this is happening, Malcolm X's two bodyguards go to like quell that disturbance, like get rid of the smoke bomb, deal with whatever's going on there. And when they leave, 
it allowed a man to rush forward and shoot Malcolm X in the chest with a shot, sawed-off shotgun. Oh my god. Two other men also charged the stage at, the, at this time, firing handguns at Malcolm X. Meanwhile, this is so horrifying. His wife, Betty, and their four daughters were sitting there in that audience, and she was like underneath the chairs shielding her daughters from gunfire. Malcolm X was transported to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, but his injuries were too severe, and he was declared dead on arrival at 3.30 p.m. He was only 39 years old. That is insane. Which is how old I am, so. In the autopsy, they found 21 separate gunshot wounds to his body, to his chest, shoulder, arms, and legs, including 10 buckshot wounds from the initial shotgun blast. Now, I'm not a gun person, and I don't... I don't know that you are either, but maybe you know this answer. Is buckshot, like, I have some understanding where some forms of ammunition, when they, like, hit their target, they, like, scatter? And is that what buckshot does? Yes, I think that that type of weapon, and this is just from, like, <laughs> watching and and reading, like, true crime stuff or whatever. Yeah. But I think that's what it is. Like, exactly okay. what you said, like, the, the buckshot scatters... And I think it's like yeah, which something it... you can only do from a sawed-off shotgun. Okay, okay. So the crowd was able to detain one of the shooters, whose name is Talmadge Hayer, and he was a member of the Nation of Islam. The two other assailants were supposedly identified by members of the crowd as also being members of the Nation of Islam, and their names at this time were nor- known as Norman 3X Butler and Thomas 15X Johnson. And I think I think those like 3X, 15X refer to the kind of like district affiliation with the Nation of Islam. Oh, Like okay. the 3rd District, the 15th District, I think. Okay. So each of the three men was convicted of murder in 1966 and sentenced to life in prison, which is strange because... Hayer confessed during his trial. He was like, yes, I held the shotgun. I shot him. But he said he would. He refused to identify any of his co-conspirators, except to say that Butler and Johnson, the two men that had been arrested and now sentenced to life in prison, were not part of it. Okay. So he says four other members were members of the assassination, but Butler and Johnson were not. And... Mm. Butler actually had an alibi during the time of the murder, but police, like, literally never checked it out. Wow. Oh, wow. And and actually, a lot of the things that you read talk about how this was a super botched investigation from the beginning because it was in this ballroom, right? And it was in the afternoon. I think I said, like, 2 or 3.30. By 7 o'clock, the ballroom had been, like, converted to an, an event for a dance that was happening that night. So, like, oh it was not <laughs> thoroughly investigated at all. And actually, so, in like, the Netflix... We can't cancel it. Can't cancel yeah. the dance. So in the Netflix documentary, they talk about how when the kind of main investigator guy, who's actually like a lay person who has just done years and years of research, and many historians actually say that is the person who knows the most about Malcolm X in the world. Wow. He went to the Audubon Ballroom and like went to the basement of the building. And in the basement was the lectern that was that Malcolm X was standing behind, like covered in bullet holes. And it was just, like, in the ballroom basement. Like, it was not part of police evidence. <sighs> so th- these are kind of, like, the things people point to as, like, the police work was non-existent in investigating this murder. 
Yeah, it wasn't important. Correct. However, Butler, in signed affidavits later in his life, after serving time in prison, he reasserted his own innocence, saying that he did not do this, and in and this point, he named four other members of the Nation of Islam as having been responsible for Malcolm X's murder. Okay. So the person who had been convicted and accused gave the names of four other people who had actually planned and, and orchestrated and executed the assassination. But despite this, officials refused to reopen the case. Oh, wow. Malcolm X's funeral involved a public viewing over the course of three days at the Unity Funeral Home in Harlem, and it's estimated that up to 30,000 people came through to, like, pay their respects and mourn. His service was held on February 27th, and because he was this very public figure that many people loved and respected, his service was broadcast on a number of television stations. Many civil rights leaders were in attendance and spoke at his service. And this is just like such a a moment after the service during his burial when they were going to actually bury his casket like friends and family members of Malcolm X took the shovels away from the gravediggers and buried him themselves. Mm. Also, remember earlier how I said that he and Betty had six daughters, but at the time of the assassination only four of them were born because at the time Betty was pregnant with twins. Oh. Who were born after he was killed. Okay. Oh. So, As I said, Malcolm X, very polarizing figure to a lot of people. So the reactions to his assassination really reflected this. In the general press, most commentators like ignored his recent, more recent, supposedly, changes in perspective and instead like totally demonized him, criticized him as this violent rabble rouser and was like, that's what you get. So that was the general press's opinion on the uh, assassination. Martin Luther King Jr. sent a telegram to Malcolm X's wife, Betty, and it stated, quote, While we did not always see eye to eye on methods to solve the race problem, I always had a deep affection for Malcolm and felt that he had a great ability to put his finger on the existence and root of the problem. He was an eloquent spokesman for his point of view, and no one can honestly doubt that Malcolm had a great concern for the problems that we face as a race. He also stated, quote, the murder of Malcolm X deprives the world of a potentially great leader. And I, I've watched a number of documentaries that sort of talk about the assassination of like a number of civil rights leaders that occurred in like the 50s, 60s, and of course before as well. But mm-hmm. um, it really reminds me, like that feeling of the this community lost a great leader. It really makes me think of the like the queer community as well when like the government just let everybody die of HIV and AIDS and we lost like an entire generation of like queer folks, queer elders. Um, so that it was a, not obviously the same, but a, a similar loss of kind of political influential leaders in the community. Um, but as I'll kind of talk about in a few minutes, potentially orchestrated by our government. Mm, Right. So Malcolm or Martin Luther King Jr. Made these, kind of lovely sentiments about Malcolm saying, you know, we didn't agree, but he was a great man. Uh, He really had a lot of uh, concern for our community. We've lost a great leader. Elijah Muhammad, however, said he got what he preached. So many people wonder if we have ever gotten the true story behind Malcolm X's assassination. And there are a number of theories about kind of conspiracies to kill him. Mm, In the Netflix... 
in the Netflix documentary series I watched, someone uh, in like the first episode, someone described it as like looking at a Rorschach test. Like it's all blurry and it's kind of like, well, what do you see out of this? Because there's so many, it's so all like tied up together kind of stuff. Mm. Many folks tried to just like blame it on local drug dealers. Other people cited the Nation of Islam as being responsible for his assassination. And other folks pointed out, pointed to the CIA, the FBI, and the New York Police Department, which I will say there is some good evidence for that. Because um, a man named Earl Grant, who was kind of part of um, Malcolm X's team, I guess I'll say, maybe like entourage, he describes the attack, and I'm just going to read it. Uh, So after the shooting, he says, About five minutes later, a most incredible scene took place. Into the hall sauntered about a dozen policemen. They were strolling at the pace one would expect of them if they were patrolling a quiet park. They did not seem to be at all excited or concerned about the circumstances. I could hardly believe my eyes. Here were New York City policemen entering, entering a room from which at least a dozen gunshots had been heard, and yet not one of them had his gun out. As a matter of fact, many of them had their hands in their pockets. Ooh, wow. Also, Gene Roberts is, was one member of Malcolm X's security detail. He was actually like his closest bodyguard. He was actually an undercover NYPD agent. And he was apparently relieved from his post at the Audubon Ballroom. And people noted, like, um, everybody who attended that day noted that there was no police presence anywhere, which is really weird because he was this polarizing figure and police were always at his events. Mm. And so people were like, this is a strange coincidence that none of the police were there when he was assassinated. Yeah. Further evidence for the theories of government being involved in or orchestrating his assassination came out in 19, in the 1970s when the public learned about, I haven't heard this said out loud, so I might be mispronouncing the acronym, but I think I'm going to go with COINTELPRO, which is an acronym for Counterintelligence Program. Okay. This was a series of... Illegal projects conducted by the FBI specifically focused, like, with the goal of surveilling, infiltrating, discrediting, and disrupting various political organizations, including feminist organizations, anti-Vietnam War protesters, the civil rights, and Black Power movements. So it was a documented, confirmed, intentional strategy of the FBI to send and infiltrate these groups to fuck them up. (laughs) Okay. This included, as I said, Malcolm X's bodyguard, who was an undercover agent. And when the public came to know about COINTELPRO, it revealed that the FBI had infiltrated the Nation of Islam and a number of other civil rights organizations. They bugged them. They wiretapped them. They installed cameras. They, of course, had the undercover folks surveilling them. And as I said, the the COINTELPRO, I I guess I'll just say pro oh program huh that's what the pro is for the program <laughs> they were they received specific instructions to create and exacerbate the conflict between Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad. Mm-hmm. So remember how I mentioned that members of the Nation of Islam had planned to bomb Malcolm X's car. According to many of the things I read, the people who ordered that bombing 
were FBI agents. Oh, okay. In the Netflix documentary series, the researcher, and at the end, I'm going to look up his name because I really should credit him. He's He has done so much work. Um, he comes across the man of supposedly, he comes across the four names that Talmadge Hare had given, which up until a point had been denied to the public because... Uh, you know, folks were like, well, if we do need to investigate it and we know their names, they'll just like disappear. Like right. they'll take other names and leave if they know that we know who they are. So they weren't releasing their names. Um, but one of them was named William Bradley and his now known is now known by the name Al Mustafa Shabazz, who when the researcher like the researcher was like in all of the communities, he like built so much trust with all of these people Um but when he would ask them about William Bradley or, you know, this, the name he is now goes by Al Mustafa Shabazz, people got really uncomfortable and like super evasive. And I actually like audibly gasped at one moment because you see him ask somebody like, what are, he, he phrases the question, like, what are we going to do about this, you know, William Bradley guy? And the, the man says, you leave it alone. The, you leave it alone. The state is protecting him. So, they also, in this, interview the mayor of New Jersey, who, when he was interviewed... (laughs) Wait, the mayor, the governor, you mean? All right, then it's the governor. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) All right, they interviewed a a high-level leader of New Jersey. I apologize that I don't have that specific correct. But when he was interviewed, they said, like, oh, do you know the name William Bradley? And he goes, oh, yeah, the shotgun man. And then he says, I don't like to talk about it because that can be dangerous. Hmm. So, Talmadge Hare, the man who served, like, I think, like, 20 years in prison for the murder of uh, Malcolm X, he um, met with a man named John Ali, who was the undercover agent and close advisor to Elijah Muhammad the night before Malcolm X was murdered. So there's... All of these pieces that are connecting the FBI to his assassination. So when they interviewed who at the time now was leader or who is now the leader of the Nation of Islam, uh, his name is Louis Farrakhan. His quote was, was Malcolm your traitor or ours? And if we dealt with him like a nation deals with a traitor, what the hell business is it of yours? A nation has to be able to deal with traitors and cutthroats and turncoats. Mm. He later said, like, oh, oh, I didn't mean it like that. Like, we didn't kill him, mm-hmm. but, like, maybe we created the atmosphere that led to his assassination. <laughs> and also, you know how we often talk about when people are perhaps guilty of murder and the way they phrase things is specifically strange. He says that he regrets the loss of a life. And you know how Mm. we hear that when it's like somebody killed somebody? Yeah. (laughs) But they can't own up to it. I'm just saying that kind of reminds me of that. Yeah. Um, But he denied the allegations that he had ordered Malcolm X's assassination. Of course. And because there's still no consensus on who is officially responsible for his murder, even though the, those three men served like 20 years in prison, as recently as 2014, a petition was made to the White House to ask for the release of all files of the FBI surveillance of Malcolm X without any alteration or redaction. And this was actually a, a petition that was supported by members of the families of John F. Kennedy and the families of Martin Luther King, as well as Bobby Kennedy. And remember, 
we've talked about with JFK that perhaps the FBI and or CIA was involved in his assassination as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In February of this year, a press conference uh, where some of Malcolm X's daughters and other family members uh, were in attendance, one of the undercover officers who was part of, I think he was in the Nation of Islam, stated that he like released a letter stating that stated that he was told to encourage leaders and members of civil rights groups to commit felonious acts. So he's saying, I was sent undercover, but I was given these orders to have people like do illegal things, perhaps kill people, etc. Some people say that that letter is fake, but again, who who knows? Who's to say? So wrapping up. A number of cities across the United States recognize Malcolm X Day, which is held on May 19th, his birthday. He's described by many as one of the most influential Black men in history, specifically African-American men in history. He's credited with, one of the things that he's very often credited with is raising the self-esteem and and self-worth, the recognition of self-worth of Black Americans and saying like, we have this heritage, we are connected to Africa, we should have self-pride, we should be proud of who we are. He's like really credited with a lot of that kind of like pride in the Black community. Yeah. Um, He appeared on a U.S. postal stamp in 1999. But as I said, he's a really polarizing figure. And so I found in my research, I found this article that I think really kind of captures some things perfectly. So I'm going to read a couple of quotes from it. Um, It's an article called Malcolm X is still misunderstood and misused by a professor named Dr. Omar Suleiman, who is a scholar of Muslim studies. Okay, great. So this guy talks about how in when he teaches classes about uh, the civil rights movement or the history of the civil rights movement movements, One of his classroom activities is he gives them quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and asks them to to guess which which one said this thing. Mm. And invariably, people always get it wrong. They attribute all of the statements about like violence and things like that to Malcolm X, and they attribute all the things about like nonviolent or what's uh, passive resistance, nonviolent protest to MLK Jr. But they actually both said a lot of these things. So Dr. Suleiman writes, Martin is the perfect hero who preached nonviolence and love, and Malcolm is the perfect villain who served as his violent counterpart preaching hate and militancy. The result of this is not just a dishonest reading of history, but a dichotomy that allows for Dr. King to be curated to make us feel more comfortable and Malcolm X to be demonized as the demagogue from who we should all flee. Oh, yeah. And interestingly, um, MLK Jr. and Malcolm X only met once, and they had a brief meeting, they shook hands, but despite this, they were, like, pitted against each other in all of these, like, retellings of history and in in the media at the time, Mm -hmm. especially because after Malcolm X left the Nation of Islam, King was quoted as saying... If tangible gains are not made soon across the country, we must honestly face the process, uh, prospect that some Negroes might be tempted to accept some oblique path such as that that Malcolm X proposes. So he's acknowledging kind of the, the potential reality of Malcolm X's ballot or bullet speech. Yeah. And I think one of the most important things in that Dr. Suleiman is trying to get across in this article 
um, that many historians also talk about is that Malcolm X was this polarizing identity, but it was actually a strategy to benefit the civil rights movement, to align more people with MLK Jr. Because just weeks before assassination, Dr. Silliman writes, he went to Selma where when Dr. King was arrested and willingly embraced his role as the scary alternative. In every interview in his meeting with Dr. Coretta Scott King and elsewhere, he vocalized that the U.S. would do well to give the good reverend what he was asking for or else. And X said, I didn't come to Selma to make his job difficult. I really did come thinking I could make it easier. If the white people realize what the alternative is, perhaps they will be more willing to hear Dr. King. Right. So Dr. Suleiman writes that Malcolm had no problem playing the villain so long as it led to his people no longer being treated like animals. And Dr. Suleiman references another scholar in his article who talks about the, again, principles of passive resistance espoused by the civil rights movement. Ultimately, like he talks about how throughout history that the that that strategy is kind of politically, he uses the phrase impotent, like politically impotent without the threat of potential violence behind it that was the alternative that Malcolm represented to them. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So Malcolm X really spoke to Black Americans about, you know, internalized racism, helping them to achieve true liberation, including ways that individuals had kind of, again, internalized racism and were oppressing themselves, themselves and others. And so Dr. Suleiman writes, Malcolm was a proud Muslim who never stopped being black. And while he no longer subscribed to a condemnation of the entire white race, he was unrelenting in his critique of global white supremacy. And he concludes his article on Malcolm X by saying, in the words of the great James Baldwin, as concerns Malcolm and Martin, I watched two men coming from unimaginably different backgrounds whose positions originally were poles apart driven closer and closer together. By the time each died, their positions had become virtually the same position. It can be said, indeed, that Martin picked up Malcolm's burden, articulated the vision which Malcolm had begun to see and for which he paid with his life. And the new Netflix series, as I mentioned, re-examines uh, or kind of reinvestigates his assassination. And because of that Netflix series the Manhattan District Attorney has announced that his office will review the case. Oh, wow. So potentially a new reinvestigation of the assassination of Malcolm X as well. I'm going to conclude with a quote uh, from a historian named Zir Ali, who said, we should always hold the assassination of Malcolm X in our minds of examples of state complicity, duplicity, or active acts against the Black community. Because again, there is, if... If the FBI or CIA or NYPD was not part of his assassination, there is so much coincidental evidence that it's almost impossible to believe. Yeah. So that is the story of the assassination of Malcolm X. I, of course, had to leave out so much stuff because it's a very detailed story. Oh, it's got it a long be, and storied history. It could be a whole season. 100%. It could absolutely and be a season. When you mentioned the X-Men, I read one fun fact, which is that Malcolm X was the inspiration for the character of Magneto, while Martin Luther King Jr. was the inspiration for Professor X. Oh, wow. Are you serious? I'm totally serious. Isn't that fascinating? And it, like, perfectly makes sense, because that's, like, literally the strategies that both of them use for the integration of these communities. It's wow. so interesting. Oh, uh, 
That is really interesting. Whew. That was a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. Great job. I, thank you. I, am, uh, I hope I did his story justice. It was really intimidating to research because there is so much. There's so much, and then there's also so much that regurgitates the same talking points. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of hard to distinguish at times what is like new information, accurate factual information, and what is sound bites that have gotten repeated, potentially distorted over time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so much is debated still. <sighs> totally. So and it's hard I, to not like, you know, go down one path and, and present yes, it differently than the other. Definitely. So I and think you did great. If I had had enough time, I would have read his autobiography. I, th- I think I will still anyway, because it's actually cited as one of the most important, like the top, one of the top 20 most important books in history mm-hmm. is his autobiography. So I, I do think I'm going to read it because I learned a lot about him. And I think his his story is fascinating. And I think that what he did for his community is huge. Yeah. So Yeah, I, I learned a lot from you telling the story because just how you said, I always viewed them as opposites like the good guy and the bad guy and i never really knew why i thought malcolm x was the bad guy right i mean i know why because that's how he was always presented in in the media and then when the movie came out with denzel washington and it just was always like a topic that seemed like you know he's the bad guy he's violent exactly that was it and it's what what i really took away from this was Malcolm X, like, again, people portray him as this, like, person who espoused violence, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the articles I read was, like, they, I'm not going to put this as well as they did, but they're essentially saying, like, why is it such a big deal if he did preach about violence when violence is the tool used to oppress these people, and yet we're saying you can't use that back at us? Mm-hmm. You know, like by that logic, it's like, oh, so only you have the rights to violence? Like, what the fuck? So anyway, it's just, it's, he's got such a fascinating history and it was really, really interesting to learn more about him. Well, I think I learned a lot. So thank you and great job. And I feel like a lot of that ties into like the very untrue stereotypes of people who are Muslim in general being violent and having that kind of like thing. And I feel like that was always a thing that was put out there and- Everything I've learned about people who are Muslim and those who can have converted, like, I think one of the reasons I mentioned, I kept saying Muhammad Ali instead mm-hmm. of Malcolm X is because a friend of mine of like a week ago just shared on Instagram, uh, shout out to Yoser, so thank you for sharing <laughs> this, but um, he had shared the very like famous interview with Muhammad Ali and, mm-hmm. um, oh, I'm going to forget the guy's name, Parkinson was, oh, not Parkinson, um... Yeah, I think the guy's name is Parkinson from the 70s when he's talking about, like, why is everything white? Do you know that speech? I don't think I do. I'll I'll send you the link to it. I have it. Okay. It's a really great speech, but he's talking about um, sort of what made him inspire to convert. Oh, okay. start gotcha. following uh, Malcolm X. And hmm. he says, like, you know, he remembers being a little boy and talking to his mom about very normal things. Like, wait, why is God white? Right. And why are all the angels white? And right. why are all the apostles white? And all these things and like just how he started to like shift his mindset and things like that. And um it's really, really interesting. I'll, I'll share it. But I think that's another thing. Like when I hear about all the teachings, it's it's so opposite of anything that you learn as an American child. <laughs> right. From yes. like the media. You know what I mean? 
Totally. Totally. Totally opposite. Imagine if the mindset, the accurate mindset was, was the popular opinion back then. Exactly. How differently so many things would have gone. Yeah, absolutely. Including all of this, this whole story. You know what I mean? Um, I feel like people who were anything related to Islam or Muslim were looked at as public enemy number one. Oh, for sure. Especially like after 9-11, I feel like we became a very Islamophobic country if we weren't already super Islamophobic before. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because I think that's when it really like exploded in, it became a part of like the mindset of white people. Yeah. But I feel like before that, always, I mean, look at the episodes of Law and Order that we're watching when they, when they portray people, you know. Uh, Period. Anyone. (laughs) People. They portray anyone on Law and Order. It's bad. Yeah, so. How would you rate the episode? Hmm. I actually really enjoyed watching this episode. I thought it was uh, like like a little mini movie, honestly. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it an A minus, actually, for watchability. Nice. okay. Really okay. liked it. And, and the topic? The topic, I'm going to give it a B. Okay. Like a B, because I feel like they they covered a lot of the bases and the... It's still debatable feeling in the episode, mm-hmm. which it is today. Yeah. Um, yeah. I th- it's so interesting. I think I would rate the watchability of the episode probably like a, a B. That's okay. fine. I think I would give them, the, buckle your seatbelt. I'm going to give them an A minus for wow. how they dealt with things. Because when I was watching, I like watched the footage of um, Malcolm X's assassination. And when I turned on the episode, because I had watched that all first. And when I turned on the episode, I was like, well, thank God I chose that option of the four <laughs> stories that I could have researched because they literally recreated it in the first like opening scene. Yeah. I mean, listen, they won an Emmy award for this episode. Yeah. So yeah. Whoa. Oh, I do want to say one thing before we go, kind of like unrelated and re- unrelated. So yep. the, the person who I was citing and talking about in that Brene Brown episode, it's Sonia Renee Taylor. And okay. it's the episode where they're talking about body shame. And she is talking about how the way we think about our bodies connects to oppression. Mm-hmm. And she's describing the latter analogy. So that's who I was talking about. So I just want to make sure I uh, cited it correctly. Gotcha. The thing that I just wanted to say really quickly that I meant to say at the outset of telling this story was that obviously I I am a white person reflecting on the history of Mm -hmm. black folks in America. I tried really hard to only use like the... uh, like language words and perspectives of people who were there telling the stories at the time and historians reflecting on it retrospectively. And so if I got anything wrong or said anything in a way that you feel like misrepresents his story, I would really love to hear that so that I can correct it. Because if I did any of that, it was out of uh, (laughs) ignorance, not intent. Right. And I honestly... That statement could just go blanket across our whole series. So if <laughs> yes, any time on any of our episodes, I would much rather if a new listener decided to like cherry pick an episode and listen to it and thought like, oh my God, that was terrible. Yes. Rather than just like not listening ever again, which it's your prerogative, send us an, even an angry email. I just want to know because, yes. you know, call me out. Yeah. I understand that posting comments on the internet can feel like screaming into the void. But writing a review for our podcast is actually super helpful because it makes it more likely that people will find our podcast in the first place. Go try it now. 
The second best thing you could do to help us grow, help other people find us, and just a little thank you for, you know, creating content that you love would be to recommend our podcast to a friend because we know you have excellent taste and people respect your opinion. And as we were talking about, we love connecting with other listeners, even if it's an angry email. So please feel free to send us an email at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. And while you're online, head on over to rippedheadlinespod.com where you'll find the link to our Patreon as well as our merch store. Also, a percentage of our Patreon proceeds gets donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting us, know that you're also supporting positive change in the world. Thank you for listening to Ripped from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye.